0: Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, three myths for people that are approaching retirement. Are these traps you're falling into? Stick around. We'll get into it in just a moment.
1: Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Kraftwerk Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Kraftwerk Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions.
0: Welcome back, everybody, to Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my partner, Dan Maseka.
1: Hey, Ross. How are you doing today?
0: I am doing fantastic. It is February. Valentine's Day is coming up for everybody. Dan, do you have any Valentine's Day plans?
1: Not this year. And in fact, I think the last time that I did anything was Valentine's Day 2020, the last time I was out of my house as a normal human being.
0: Wow. So so it is not only this year's Valentine's Day, but it is also the anniversary of the last time you did anything outside of the home.
1: Yeah. I mean, if there's anything worth celebrating, I guess that's it, right?
0: Man, I can't can't wait for us to be able to go back to to restaurants and and uh, be able to enjoy life again. That's for sure, and I'm I'm sure we're we're not alone in that feeling.
1: My daughter, who is two and a half years old, told me the other day, "Daddy, do you remember restaurants? Remember when we went to a restaurant?" And the fact that that isn't lost on her that that's something that we did and don't do anymore is is crazy to me.
0: Wow, that's crazy that she thinks about it like that. Well, I'd like to transition us into the main portion of our show today in which we're covering three different, uh, what we're calling myths about retirement. Uh, these are things that are kind of out there in the world and talked about sort of as if they're common knowledge or or something that everybody knows and, and should be doing. Uh, and we take a little bit of a different angle, uh, I think, at all three of them. And so the first one we're going to get into is whether or not you need to have your mortgage paid off as you enter retirement. So if you're kind of in those years approaching, retirement's on the way for you, should getting that mortgage paid off be something that you're really focused on.
1: I hear it all the time. Uh, when we're gearing up for a retirement planning conversation, either they'll outline that as one of their top priorities, I want to pay off my mortgage before I retire, or they'll state it as a matter of pride that oh, I'm paying x100 dollars a month extra to my mortgage. I believe that'll be paid off before we get to that point. Uh, So I hear it all the time.
0: I hear that as well. And uh, to me, it comes down to what is the actual goal? And I think what people's actual goal is, is to reduce the amount of burn rate or the amount of cash flow that they're going to have to draw from their portfolio or the amount of income that they're going to need in retirement. But as a result, they kind of take that line at it, and they commit all this extra capital to paying off the mortgage really aggressively, uh, which is not always what we would recommend.
1: It's a scary thing to have to figure out where that money's coming from. If you have a mortgage of thousands of dollars a month, and now you have to find that money in your portfolio, which is not something you're used to doing, it's easier to imagine not having to do that, even if it means working a little harder ahead of time. Uh, But, you know, the truth is that there's, there's a, a flip side to that. So, in attacking that goal, what are you giving up to get there?
0: Yeah. And I, I think that's where you and I really do have an issue is that as we think about retirement planning and what you should have asset wise, what we prefer for people is a mixture a mixture of some IRA assets or 401k assets, whatever you're using as your retirement plan, as well as some taxable you know meaning money that has just been savings and has gone into your individual brokerage account and even the language of that i think sometimes confuses people right you and i have both had e- examples where we've said okay well tell me about what you have saved for retirement and people go through their retirement accounts and then you say okay well what's that account over there and they say oh that's my individual account it's my it's my personal account it's a brokerage account
1: play money i hear that a lot
0: Exactly. And and that's kind of what, what can sometimes be very meaningful amounts of money, but it's not really considered as part of the retirement picture. But the reality is if you've saved it and it's intended to fund your retirement, in my opinion, it's a retirement account.
1: Right. Surprise. It's there for your retirement. You're going to use this money.
0: That doesn't mean, you know, obviously the tax obviously the tax situation on how that money gets treated is different. And that's why we like people to have it, is that it allows us some flexibility in terms of where the money comes from. Because as you think about retirement, one of people's main goals is controlling taxes and and being able to limit where their their taxes are going to be. And if all of that money that you have saved for retirement is in IRAs, if it's all in pre-tax buckets, you don't have any flexibility when it comes to taxes. Every dollar you take out is taxable. And, and I think that 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 ends up being a, a challenge for people and, and to bring it back to the mortgage side, what people are normally neglecting when they're you know paying off their mortgage really aggressively or committing extra dollars per month that they don't have to is they're neglecting that taxable bucket. That's where the money could go is into a taxable brokerage account.
1: Saving for retirement is a lot easier, especially if you have an employer with a 401k plan where all the money is taken out through a payroll deduction you have a pretty basket of mutual funds you can invest in. So what's happening is you've done your saving, you can check that box. Now when you get your paycheck and you find that you're lucky enough to have some extra dollars, you have to figure out what to do with it. And it's very tempting to just direct that to a mortgage, which you're already used to paying, instead of having to create your own investment plan and investment bucket and figure out how to be managing that on your own.
0: I think the other thing that makes this challenging for people is just the interest rate environment that we're in, which is you know if you've got cash savings, if it's sitting in your bank, you're likely earning very, very little on it. Even on a high yield savings, you're probably at a half a percent, maybe less, depending on which bank you're using, uh, which is probably your best option for cash right now. Whereas the mortgage, even though we're in really, really low rates, you're obviously getting more than a half a percent in yield when you pay that off. Uh, and so I think that guaranteed return is is really uh, attractive to to people that are are making that decision.
1: You're faced with a known low rate of return in a money market or the known return quote unquote in paying your mortgage. The alternative to that is a complete unknown in investing in the stock market where today we're facing all-time highs. It's very tempting to shy away from that because not only are you facing, Lower returns, you could be facing loss there too.
0: Yeah. So, so to take this to like a logical extreme, uh, I, I kind of present this example from time to time, which is if you think about two families that have the exact same level of total wealth, five hundred thousand dollars, and family one, all of that wealth is wrapped up into a paid off home, so they have no mortgage. The home is paid off; it's worth a half a million dollars. Family number two has the same value home, $500,000, but they've only got 100,000 of equity. The other 400,000 is on a mortgage and then they have 400,000 of liquid assets. I would choose to be family number two, 10 times out of 10, because if I'm that family, I've got the option to do all sorts of things. I could pay off the mortgage today. So if for some reason I've got a burden and getting rid of that payment becomes important, I can do that, drop of a hat. Or I can invest into things that I think are likely to yield me higher returns, or I can just use that money, uh, that liquidity for living expenses, right? I've got a lot more optionality in terms of what I'm gonna do there. And so with the same amount of wealth, I wouldn't choose to necessarily be the zero debt family because what I value, especially as a planner, is the flexibility to kind of adapt and, and to adjust for the unknowns that are gonna come at me. Again, that that's an extreme. I don't think Anybody should take away that I'm recommending somebody have no no equity in their home or that having equity in their home is a bad thing. But uh, if you've got equity in your home and you've got no liquidity, you're not necessarily in a better situation.
1: The key word you said there is flexibility. So it's important by planning ahead, you can build that flexibility into your plan. It doesn't mean that paying off your mortgage is bad. The important thing is ensuring that you've built in other safeguards in your financial plan to get to what your real end goal is which for most people is just financial independence whenever that date comes. So ensuring that you have the savings in multiple tax buckets and you know if that comes along with debt-free living, great, you know, you should pursue that, but don't pay off the home at the expense of other important things.
0: All right, so let's get into our second topic, which is that you need to convert your portfolio as you get close to or head into retirement from a growth strategy to dividend payers. Right? That we hear that all the time, I'm getting a little bit older, I'm getting close to retirement. How do I convert my portfolio from these companies that have been doing well and these things that I've liked and I've invested in to something that's going to pay me some income? So let's break it down.
1: It's another thing I hear all the time is I've been saving, growing this portfolio, now I need to start taking income. How do I change my holdings? They feel like you know you can't you can't sell anything you have to take money. How do I get these stocks to pay me?
0: This is a strategy that I think in the past has certainly worked well for people. I do think our investing landscape has changed a little bit, and I'm going to go through a brief history. and, and Michael Kitsis, who's a, a thought leader in the financial planning community, does a, a great presentation on this. But essentially, it's kind of the history of retirement income. You know, if you if you go back to the 50s, uh, the way that people structured retirement income was that they bought bonds and they literally clipped the coupon and they lived on the yield from their bonds. Uh, And at the time, even though that may sound silly now, bond yields were pretty attractive. They were very safe. And and that money was uh, thought of as essentially guaranteed. Right? It, It wasn't necessarily guaranteed, but was thought of as very, very safe. And then what happened? Inflation. And one of the things that will absolutely chew up bonds is inflation because you've got a fixed amount of payment, a fixed coupon that you're getting. And if your costs are rising, your fixed payment is not going to keep up. Uh, And so people went, oh, my gosh, this isn't good. What do we do next? The next iteration really was dividend stocks where people said okay I'm going to I'm just going to buy dividend payers that way they will keep up with inflation because companies can ingest that inflation and then you know put it back to their clients that will keep up because dividend yields will rise and the result there is not necessarily a terrible one that is a sustainable way for most people you know dividends again aren't guaranteed but but they are fairly stable certainly more stable than stock prices uh, but the likely outcome if you invest purely in dividend payers is that your portfolio continues to grow and grow and grow. It's going to get much, much bigger. And you're likely living on less than you could. And the current yield environment makes this really difficult. All right. So if we look at the S&P 500 yield, and I realize that's not everybody's benchmark, but but let's just take that as an example. So over history, Dan, what would you guess the dividend yield has been on the S&P 500?
1: I'm going to say around 3%.
0: It's actually higher than that, 4.3%. is the average yield of the S&P 500 historically.
1: Wow, I would certainly take that
0: today. Uh, Of course, right? And and so to generate an income of $50,000 a year, historically what you've needed in your portfolio is 1.16 million. That's not bad. Today, the S&P 500 yield is at 1.51% which means to generate the exact same $50,000, you need north of $3.3 million of capital in the S&P 500 to generate 50 grand of income. It's more than two and a half times what you would have needed historically to generate that same amount of yield. So The dividend yield is not necessarily there for us. The other thing that you could do is you could invest into really high dividend paying stocks. And uh, this was an exercise I I actually did in the fall was to take a look at this, was what are the top 10 dividend payers and what if you just bought those? Uh, And if you looked at the top 10 dividend paying stocks in in the fall of 2020, and you just did an equal weight portfolio across them, you would have had a dividend yield of more than 8%, right? 8%. How, How attractive does that sound?
1: Sounds pretty good. Sign me up
0: that same portfolio over the last 5 years would have lost 5 and a quarter percent per year. I
1: withdraw my approval, take my money back.
0: Exactly. So you would have been signing up for an annualized loss of 5 and a quarter percent where the S&P 500 delivered 11.71% in annualized returns over the same period. So you're you're in a 15% a year hole because you chose to go for those really high dividend payers. In other words, if you had put a million bucks into those 10 companies today, you would have had about $760,000 versus 1.7 million had you just bought the S&P 500 on its own. So chasing yield, those yields can really start to look juicy and, and really tempting and exciting. That's not necessarily the right approach.
1: If you're just picking companies based on yield, there's a lot going on underneath there that you have to be careful about companies can be raising their dividends just to look attractive. And, you know, there might not be a lot backing that up. So it, it's very hard to go in blind and just pick the top dividend payers and figure that that's your retirement portfolio. Uh, that's a very easy trap to fall into. And, and you have
0: to be careful. All right. So Dan, we've talked about all the problems, right? Bonds aren't a great solution. Dividend payers, not necessarily that we want to avoid dividend paying companies entirely, but but maybe not the the quick solution to the retirement income problem. So what do you suggest?
1: Buy rental real estate. (laughs) So so really, another thing I hear all the time, really our approach is taking a more holistic view of investing, building a portfolio that's suited to your long-term goals and risk tolerance. And it's okay to dip into principle to take the money that you need. Over time, it's important to set up a plan that's built to support your lifestyle needs, support your income. And then just be strategic about how you're taking money off that portfolio. A combination of stocks, for most people, bonds and cash as well, is set up to provide that income for you. And historically, what financial planners have said is somewhere between, let's give a pretty wide window and call it 3 to 5% of your portfolio is what you could be peeling off for your retirement expenses even if it's not being generated through dividends or interest income?
0: So I think the key for us uh, is what we call a carve-out strategy. Uh, And the way that that works is we need to protect a certain number of years of your capital so that you're not at the whims of the market. Because that's really the risk here. Because we're still saying that you should have stocks in your portfolio. That should be part of your retirement portfolio. We're also saying it doesn't have to be dividend payers. And so what you're then looking for is a way to take some of the volatility out of the market where you're not necessarily having to change your spending habits at the whims of what the stock market is doing. And the way that we do that is we have at least, in my opinion, three to five years worth of what you're gonna need in something very safe. And what that gives you is some flexibility and some optionality. You're gonna notice a theme uh, that if the market is bad in any given year, you've got this safe bucket to draw from. If the market's good, you you kind of keep that balance. You keep that five-year safety net there, and so that you're never in a position where you're super tight. And and hopefully, the goal there that you know we don't we don't have a crystal ball, but at least historically, that's going to give you enough cover so that you can allow stocks to recover from a poor situation in most bear markets. And that methodology, if you go back and you look at the 2008 financial crisis you would have had enough time there right from the peak of 2007 to where the S&P 500 recovered was about a 5-year window and so if you didn't have to sell stocks during that window you would have gotten all the way back to even and that's certainly not our goal that's not what we're predicting or thinking is going to happen but that's the sort of safety net that we need to be building for people is at least 5 years so that they can ride through that type of environment
1: and that's in a bad market environment in a good market environment you might feel stupid for having all that cash built up on the sideline. For a lot of people, five years of living expenses is a lot of cash. And seeing it sitting sitting there idly, especially when high-yield savings are generating nothing as far as interest, can lead you to want to do something. But having that in cash is actually allowing you to take better advantage of a rising market because of the other assets that you can invest for the longer run, as opposed to having to be conservative and you know, put money in things that are going to be safer because you're really relying on that in the short term.
0: So I think that gives us a really nice segue into our final myth, uh, which is kind of this uh, sloppy shortcut that we've always heard about asset allocation. And what it really boils down to is that more age equals less risk. And kind of this theory that the older you get, you've kind of got less recovery time for your portfolio, and so that your portfolio should be increasingly more conservative. And there used to even be uh, a formula for this, which was that you would take 100 minus your current age, and that should be your allocation to stocks. And then people tried to mess with it and said, well, maybe it should be 110. But either way, 100 minus your age. So if you're a 20-year-old, you should have 80% in stocks because it's 100 20 Right. So, so you know, that simple formula, what are the issues with that, Dan?
1: Well, I, I think you said my first issue already. As a 20-year-old, do I really need 20% in cash and bonds? What's that doing for me if I have the longest investing time horizon that I'm ever going to have? You're really potentially losing opportunity and need to be aware of what your own goals are before you just go ahead and, and follow a broad generalization like that.
0: Do you subscribe to the theory that somebody in retirement or, or somebody that's continuing to age through retirement needs less and less risk progressively as they go?
1: I don't. In my opinion, age has nothing to do with how much risk you're, you should be taking in your portfolio. There are really two main things I look at when I determine what a portfolio composition should be for someone. The first is your risk tolerance. So how much up and down are you willing to take in the market? Like, will you sit on your hands through a 20% drop, or are you going to be on the phone calling your advisor or logging into your Schwab account doing sell, 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 sell? Uh, The other is your capacity for risk. So not everyone has the same capacity for risk. If I've done really well for myself and saved tons and tons of money, and I'm not really relying on that for my daily living expenses, I could potentially afford more risk in my portfolio and be aggressive all the way through. And the opposite is true, or I could just be super conservative and still be able to support my needs. Whereas someone who hasn't done well, you know, that capacity is factored in very differently. If I'm super reliant on that money, I might need to take a different approach. So everyone's situation is going to be unique, and I would not tie how much risk I took to my age. At all, for that matter.
0: Yeah, I've always thought of age as kind of just again. I, I kind of said this at the top of the segment, but but a sloppy shortcut. Uh, it seems to be one of these things where if you can assign a quick answer to that, you can give really quick soundbite advice, which has nothing to do with the individual situation people are in. Right? There's a complete difference between somebody that comes to us and says listen, this is a pot of money that I'm not necessarily going to need. I don't expect to need it for my living expenses. It's probably going to go to my kids or grandkids or a charity that I'm passionate about. That's got a very different investing goal to it than somebody that comes and says, Hey, listen, I need to take 5% out of this portfolio per year. This is my living expense money. I need to make sure that it's protected. Those are completely different people. Even if they're both 75 year olds, right and and so as i think about what we do boiling it down into sound bites and again i think this is part of our why we wanted to do this show is to explain some of those relationships so that people really understand it and why you know the answer is always it depends in finance but it depends on what and and for us i think you you summed it up correctly that that capacity for risk and then that tolerance for risk are the two really important things and then tying that back to what is the goal not necessarily even overall but what is the goal for this particular pot of money what is it doing for you and is it set up to do that correctly
1: ironically it depends makes for terrible tv and radio and here we are sitting preaching it depends and that's why you don't hear it often is if you're paying a financial pundit to go up and teach people about money they can't go and say well go go talk with someone and figure out what's right for you they're they're really looking to give rules of thumb that are broadly applicable so you can go home and do something about it, the caution there is to make sure you're not doing something to your detriment.
0: Couldn't agree more. So I guess to, to put a bow on our, our three concepts today, uh, three things that we think are myths in the financial planning world, uh, or certainly in terms of how people understand the financial planning world. Number one, paying off your mortgage before retirement shouldn't necessarily be the goal, right? If you happen to do so, or if you're able to do so while still saving in a diversified, kind of tax structure for your assets, great. But we don't necessarily want people to aggressively pay down their mortgage at the expense of other savings goals. It depends. (laughs) Number two, converting to a dividend-focused portfolio isn't necessary. There are ways to structure retirement income without having to sell the stocks or the companies that you love to be invested in. and throwing all of those out for a bunch of dividend payers so that you can live off the income. We believe that a carve out strategy is a sustainable path to retirement income. And that's how we prefer to set things up for people. And then finally, that age should not always be a proxy for risk, right? Your age is not a direct link to what your portfolio should look like. Your goals, your situation, your cash flow needs are what's most important and should be driving that decision.
1: Thanks again for joining us this week on Check Your Balances. Uh, we appreciate you being a part of this. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also send us an email at checkyourbalancesoutlook.com if you have any topics you want us to cover or any questions you want us to address. Ross, always a pleasure.
0: We'll see you next time.